we have a friend who 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 gets her Christmas cards ready this year for next year. So at between Thanksgiving and Christmas, she is getting her cards all addressed and and I don't know if she writes on the inside completely, but they are all ready to go this year for for 11 to 12 months from now. And her card usually is the very first one in our mailbox uh, after Thanksgiving, right? You know, it's right there, right on the dime. Christmas cards were invented in 1846 by an artist named Sir Henry Cole, who was the owner of an art shop. He saw these cards as a way to make money. Duh. He, he was way ahead of his time, obviously. He was a trendsetter. And of course, the first cards that were printed were pictures of drinking scenes in taverns. Uh, wonderful, wonderful Christmas images there. Um, Ways to make money at Christmas seems to be a title of a class in business college somewhere. Uh, you know, how to get more money from people. Uh, I saw some decorations in the stores. I think almost at, at Halloween time this year, there were Christmas decorations coming into the stores. The commercialization of a spiritual event is not a new phenomenon. We're going to read about one of those events that was corrupted, essentially, uh, that Jesus encountered as he began his ministry. Follow me in John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I don't know about you, but when I read the scripture, I see Jesus in a very intense kind of way that we don't see him very often. Some people may be looking at that saying, whoa, Jesus, take it easy. Others may be thinking, yeah, go for it. Cleanse the temple. What is it that stirs the passion of Christ so? Let's look at this historical event of the Passover because Jesus really got worked up here. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover, of course, comes from the time when the children of Israel were in Egypt. They were in bondage. And God told Moses, go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. 
and he gave him the ability to, or God through Moses performed 10 miracles that we call the plagues, the last one of which was the death of the firstborn of man and beast. And God said, Moses, here's what's going to happen. Everybody who believes in me is going to sacrifice a lamb and is going to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of the doorpost and the lintel of their house so that they will be inside with that blood figuratively covering them or protecting them. And they will be inside eating the animal that they've sacrificed and uh, doing some certain things that I have told them to do. And while the death angel comes to kill the firstborn of man and beast, all of those who are protected by the blood will not be affected by the ministry of the death angel. The death angel will pass over you. That's where the name of Passover comes from. God's people observed that uh, event and the result was that they were protected and delivered out of Egypt. And then God said this, So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And so God said, not only are you going to have the Passover today, but a year from now, I want you to do it again, and I want you to do it every year. And then he added to that something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He said, for seven days, you're not going to have any leavening or any rising agent in your bread. You're going to, you're going to keep this feast unto me. So that's the that's the historical origin of this Passover feast. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The people of God, the chosen people, the Jewish people, were supposed to be having this feast. They were supposed to be uh, having a sacrifice for Passover. They were supposed to be having the feast of the unleavened bread. But what had happened at the time of Christ? Where had they gotten to that caused these events that made him so upset? Well, one of the things you need to start to realize is what was this like every year? Because God not only told them to keep the Passover, he told them to go to Jerusalem to do it. He said every man who is above 20 years of age is supposed to go to Jerusalem. And actually there were three times of year they were supposed to do that. So one author has said this, as many as two million people may have been in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but when you get two million people together in what is normally not a very large town, things get really crowded, and they're all coming there. And, of course, that's two million, you know, we don't know if it was just two million uh, men or if it was, you know, uh, families and so on. An incredible gathering of people. Now, look back with me at the scripture that we've just read and look at the two things that were part of this annual event. Verse 14, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. There were two things that God actually said were supposed to happen, but they had both gotten corrupted. One of them was the sacrifice. People were supposed to offer sacrifices. So they would travel from some distance. They wouldn't come with an animal towed behind them on a string. And especially if they came, they could even come from outside the nation of Israel. So they would travel in and they would come and they needed to buy an animal to sacrifice. That was a legitimate need. That wasn't a sinful thing in and of itself. 
So the sacrifices were going on and the need to buy animals was going on. And so we read about the animals being sold, but there's something wrong with that. We'll look at in a minute. The other thing that was going on was the paying of the temple tax. The temple tax, that's what it came to be called. It was actually what we would call today a poll tax. A poll tax is when you have to pay a tax just for being a person who lives somewhere. And I don't believe in most of our country, if it, I, don't, I think they've outlawed poll taxes. I think it had something to do with um, certain uh, human rights uh, back in the day. But they had to pay a tax per person to help support the temple. Here's the scripture. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them. God had told the people of Israel not to take a census, as in not to count up how many people were in the country. He didn't want them to be proud and arrogant about how many people there were. And so it would appear that what he does here is he says, now when you take a census, in other words, you're gonna, you are going to need to do this. If you do it, then pay this money as a ransom. It's like a sacrifice, if you will. A ransom for himself and the Lord when you number them that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among among those who are numbered shall give. A half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel, that really helps us, doesn't it? A shekel, the shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. There was a prescribed offering of a half a shekel. That was a certain size of a piece or a certain weight of a piece of money it was a small piece of money and so they were supposed to do that 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 is not that is a righteous thing because god instituted it they're supposed to offer sacrifices they're supposed to pay the temple tax if you will and that money came in once a year and it helped support the temple now what we find though from historical research is this that that the jewish authorities only allowed the temple tax to be paid in either a jewish shekel coin or a coin from the country of tyre t-y-r-e-i or the 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 commentaries call it tyrian coinage now an interesting reason for that is this the the tyrians the the people of tyre were traders People were constantly coming and going through their country, and so they made very scrupulous care of the amount of silver in their coins. And so if you got a, a dollar coin from Tyre, you knew it was worth a dollar's worth of silver. It was, it, was a, it was like the American dollar is today somewhat around the world. People know that the dollar is a sure thing, so sometimes they'll keep their money in that. The Tyrian money was the same way then. And so people could only pay the temple tax in this known quantity of the Tyrian coin or the, half, or the Jewish coinage. And so when people came from other parts of the world or even people in Israel, they had different money. They had to change their money. You know, when we went to, uh, when we went to, to Africa this year, the first day we woke up, we had to change some of our money. So I, I go and, you know... If you ever really want to be scared, take a couple of hundred bucks cash into a place you've never been, in a country you've never been in, in a closed room, person behind the glass there, and you hand them 200 bucks. Boy, that's living by faith. I tell you what, because I don't have a clue what's coming back at me. I, I had a missionary there with me, but she's from another country, and so they hand me back a million Ghana dollars. <laughs> I was a millionaire. Yes, I was. I mean, it's, their, their money is like 20,000 to one or something like that of ours. I don't know. 
the money changer. I can't spend my dollars in that country. In fact, it's illegal in that country to, to be trading in American dollars. And then when we went to Togo, it's even harder to change money. You know how the missionaries change money in Togo? They go down to the capital, and they go up into a little room where a guy locks the door, and they write a check to this, uh, this man, and he hands them the cash, and that's the deal. They write a check on an American bank, you know, the, the Washington Mutual Bank or whatever it is, and that's how they change money. It's, it's hard to change money in Togo for some reason. When we left Togo to come back to Ghana, we're going through town, and Tim, Tim looks over and he goes, I think that's the guy that can change our money into Ghanaian dollars. And he, he kind of makes a motion. And here comes this guy with a wad of Ghanaian dollars. Just walks up to the car, you know, peels him off there. <laughs> kind of like the border here, you know. <laughs> Going to Canada, I'd like some of those uh, loonies, please, you know. They had a legitimate need to change their money. That's a legitimate need. That's a righteous thing. It's not sinful in and of itself. They had a legitimate need to, to sacrifice to God. They had a need to buy an animal. That's a legitimate thing. So we have to keep that in mind. So it's not out and outright sinful what is going on, but what is sinful is where it's going on and how it was going on. Look what Jesus says. He found in the, in the temple... In the temple, he found those. Now, the word temple in verse 14 is not talking about, like, if, if you can picture in your mind the, the temple of God, and there was the holy place where they, the priest would actually go in and offer the sacrifice, or they had the, uh, you know, the bread and the lampstand and so on. Not in there, but in the far outer court, there was an area with a, a wall around it, if you will, that was about 14 acres of space. And it's often called the court of the Gentiles because that's an area around the temple where the Gentiles were allowed in. They weren't allowed in farther than that. So it's in this outer area where there are oxen and sheep being sold and people are selling doves. And of course, people could, could offer any of those for sacrifice. If you were poor, you could offer a dove for a sacrifice instead of a lamb or, or an ox. And then the money changers. The money changers were there exchanging, you know, getting people the right money. But if you, again, if you read the historical research, these guys made a high percentage on the exchange. And so that's what was going on in the outer court of the temple. And when Jesus saw that, verse 15, he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the money changers, poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables. And he said to the, those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, there, there's kind of a miracle right there in what just happened. How can one man drive off an entire group of people and their animals? How can that happen? Why wouldn't some guy just come over to him and just clock him one? Say, hey, buddy, I don't know who you think you are. Many of the commentators on this passage, and I would tend to agree with them, said there, there had to be something miraculous about what Jesus was doing or who he was or the, the anger that was aroused because he singularly cleaned the place out. And we asked the question, and this comes right to the heart of the message today, why was Jesus so wound up about this? Now, 
they needed to sacrifice. They needed to pay the temple tax. What's the problem? I think we get to the heart of it when he says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered what was written. And of course, that's written back in Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. I want to go back and read a kind of an extensive piece of Old Testament scripture to help you understand how Jesus thought about the temple. From 1 Kings, the setting of this is, is like so. The, uh, the temple has been built and Solomon now is dedicating the temple to God. It, this is the first worship of God in the temple. This is Solomon's prayer. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. But will God indeed dwell on the earth what Solomon was alluding to right there was this. He was saying, look, I know God is much bigger than this building. God is bigger than the earth itself. He dwells in all of the universe. Solomon had an accurate understanding of God. He knew that God is omnipresent everywhere that there is anything that we know of. He is there, not just in the temple. So he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you how much less this temple which I have built. Yet, regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. So he, he basically, this is his opening prayer where he says, Oh God, please hear my prayer. Now here's the prayer. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said... My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. And you send, and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when, there, when the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart 
and he spreads out his hand toward this temple. Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. When Solomon was praying that prayer, where was Jesus? He was in heaven with God the Father and the Holy Spirit receiving that prayer. As part of the Trinity, a part of the Godhead, he's there. Solomon, by David's encouragement, said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And he clearly understands that God is much bigger than the temple. But he also understands that God chose to focus the worship of himself in the temple. People would pray toward the temple. If they couldn't be at the temple, if they were far away, they would bow down and face themselves toward the temple from wherever they were in the whole country or the world. God chose to focus His presence in the temple. It was to be a place of prayer. We read that elsewhere in the Scripture. At the end of Jesus' ministry, He goes in and cleanses the temple again, and He says, My house shall be a house of prayer. As people were coming into the temple in Jesus' day, it was a stockyard. It was a stockyard. All of these animals. It was a bank. Hey, come on, I got a better price on your shekels over here. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Have you ever been to a Mideastern bazaar? It is bizarre. They're, they're, they got the hawkers. They're working you over. When we were in Africa this year, we go to the bazaar and they're going, come on, come on, come on. They aren't just standing there politely. Wait, you know, American salesman, can I help you, sir? No, 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 no. And yet these people were going to the temple to worship. And they're coming into this bizarre atmosphere, this, 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 uh, you know, the local market, the local bank. Uh, people, you know, noise and things carrying on. And Jesus says, this is not what my house is for. Don't make my house into a house of merchandise. Jesus was saying, this is the place where God meets with man. Not where merchants and bankers make their whole year's profit in one week. Now, I'd give a buck to find out what every one of you are thinking about right now when you're thinking, is he talking about the church then today? I mean, he just got up here and told us that after church, he's going to sell books. How ironic is that, that this this came free to me in the mail this week, And we decided to do that this week, the same week I'm preaching on this passage of Scripture. How ironic is that? And you either got to think I'm a lousy planner or brilliant. (laughs) We've been down that road before. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I would submit to you that God is just as concerned about His temple today as He was then. That Jesus cares just as much about what goes on in his temple today as he did then. The question is, where's the temple? 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In a couple of chapters in John, we're going to see Jesus talk to a woman at the well, as the story is called. And she says at a point in that story, she she starts to talk to him about where is the right place to worship. She goes, she says, our people worship here on this mountain, but you people say it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, the day is coming when you will neither worship here nor there, but God desires those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There is no location for worship today. This is not the church until the church comes into it. You are the body of Christ, and individually you are the temple of God. And so the question comes at Christmas time, if Jesus walked into the temple which is your body, would he be saying, get this stuff out of here, don't make my house a house of merchandise? Say, what's that? What do you mean, Pastor Dave? Let's look in the context here in 1 Corinthians do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and then the great principle in verse 20, glorify God. And of course, we all know 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We all know that. You want a real practical application of it? Look in verses 12 through 18 of this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought into the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. So he says right up front, there's a way to use food that glorifies God. There's a way to use food that desecrates the temple. Some of us would no more desecrate this temple, you know, do something ungodly in here then fly to the moon oh it'd be awful did you see what they did in that church how about this did you see what that person did in their body that's where god really is today and so first of all he says foods we should not be brought under the power of foods he goes on in verse 13 to say now the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot or an immoral person? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to an immoral person is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality every sin that a man does is outside the body but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit and he goes on you want to know how to keep from desecrating your body he says first of all consider what you're putting into it and how that is affecting you second of all he says consider what you're doing with it If you're living with sexual sin, you're desecrating the temple of God. 
you're looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at. If you're thinking thoughts toward other people that you should not be thinking. If you are committing actions with other people that you should not be committing, you are desecrating the temple of God. One of the things that ought to motivate us to sexual purity is the fact that whatever we do with our body, Jesus does with us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are members of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We take Him where we go. The temple of God is you, Christian. So the question is, are you misusing the temple of God? And in the context, of course, sin. In the context, of course, this talking about sexual sin, in the broader truth, it's everything you do with your body. Now let me go back to this idea of merchandising a minute. And and let me answer the question in case there's any doubt in your mind. I don't think there's one single thing wrong with us making available to you the Word of God in a form you can't find it anywhere else. No, I'm not apologizing for that one bit. (laughs) And if we had enough money, I'd give them to you. If we put enough in the offering, I'd give them away. I don't care about making money. And we're not making money. We're disseminating the Word of God in a special way that will encourage you in your Christian life. And I have no qualms with that whatsoever. Here's the real merchandising that can go on in the temple. It's when you take a good thing, like those people needed to offer a sacrifice, but they took it and corrupted it to make money on it in the temple. If they just had their sacrifices and stuff, their their, their animals outside and were conducting business in a godly way, Jesus wouldn't have said anything about it. But they brought something into the temple that didn't belong there. And then then the money changers were, were basically holding people hostage, saying, hey, you have to pay the tax, you've got to pay me. Come on. What's going on in your temple this Christmas? What, and the, the, what I've titled my sermon is what I really want you to think about, and that is, what is driving you? What is it all about in your life? For Jesus, it was all about worshiping God purely and simply. And so I would ask you, are you being driven by a concern for the righteousness of God's temple Or are there other things that are driving you this Christmas season? What kind of things drive people other than a concern for righteousness? Oh, I think some people are driven by pride. I I don't know what we were watching on TV last night, but they were were advertising something. and I don't know if we were watching the infomercials or what, but it seemed like one of them, they were doing some kind of makeup thing, and they were basically saying, Boy, you're just going to look good and people are going to look at you and you're just going to, you know, and it was all about pride. That is not a Christian virtue. And if you are doing things at Christmas time that are driven by pride, you know, like Tim the Toolman Taylor, who's going to have the greatest light display on the block, even if it kills him getting up on the roof to do it, because for sure he's got to beat that guy. You know, that's not a virtue, that's a vice. Sometimes we're driven by the pride of our children and what our children accomplish. Look how great my kids are. And the obvious inference is, look how great I am. That is not a godly thing. 
Sometimes we're driven by fear. The fear of losing a relationship. The fear of losing a job. I, I talked to somebody this week who basically said, I'm working every Sunday. This is somebody who doesn't go to our church, somebody that I've known from the past. I'm working all the time, and my spiritual life is going right down. And I said, you know, and I thought, I, I'm not pussyfooting around. I'm going right for it. You know, I usually do a lot of pussyfooting around. You know how that is. But. <laughs> and I just said, I know what you need to do. You need to go to your boss and say, boss, I have to be off on Sunday mornings. I can start working at this time, but I have got to be off. I have got to be in church. And you have got to be ready to lose your job. Because that's what God is calling you to do. And you know you need to do it. The fear of loss keeps us from righteousness. The fear of losing a relationship, the fear of losing a job drives us instead of being driven by the righteousness of Christ. Sometimes we're driven by security, money and the stuff that it can buy. We want to feel, we want to feel secure. We don't want to ever, I, I don't want to have to be beholden to anybody. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own man or my own woman. I want to have all this stuff set up. And so we do all of these things. We make all of this money so we can be secure. God says, are you driven by that or by me? Now, <clears throat> I think there's, an, uh, there's one more point that I'd like to draw to your attention from John chapter 2 as to who was Jesus the most upset with. In John chapter 2, he doesn't specifically talk to these people. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus gets extremely upset with the leadership of Israel. The leadership of Israel. Matthew twenty three thirteen. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now why do I bring this up here with John chapter 2? For a very simple reason. Is it possible that all of these people came into the temple, the court of the Gentiles, to sell their animals where they should not have been? Is it possible that they could do that without the permission of the leadership? Is it possible that the bankers came in and made lots and lots of money exchanging coin without the permission of the priests who were in charge of the temple? It's quite likely that the priests who were in charge of the temple were making a little extra. At the very least, they were giving permission for this to go on. Why hadn't they made a scourge of cords and driven these people out and say, get outside the out of our temple. Get outside of here and, and do your business somewhere else. This is not the place for this. But they let it go on. So much so that when Jesus did this, Look what they said in verse 18. So the Jews answered. That's an interesting way. They answered his actions. The Jews answered and said, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? In other words, what they, they didn't say, You know, Jesus, you're right. We shouldn't be doing this in the temple. Instead, they got defensive and they said, Who gives you the authority? And so they, they were looking at him potentially as a prophet which wouldn't have surprised them greatly that God sent them a prophet. They asked for a, a sign to prove that he had the authority to do this or a miraculous proof. And Jesus answered and said, here it is. 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They were actually in a process of rebuilding the temple. Solomon built the temple. It was torn down under, under siege by their enemies, and then it was rebuilt under Zerubbabel, and then it had fallen into disrepair. And from about 20 B.C., up until this time here, which would be about uh, 46 or, so, or whatever it is, 26 or so A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood, they had been rebuilding the temple. And so they said, it's taken 46 years. It wasn't completed, by the way, for another 20 years. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. But clearly, the leadership here doesn't go along with Jesus. They don't believe, they don't agree. They're questioning him, which means they were perfectly happy with the way things were. Jesus goes on in this, uh, in this uh, ch- chapter of Matthew here. There are eight different woes that he pronounces against the Pharisees. And he, he, uh, he just criticizes them greatly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. So where is the biggest sin in the story of the cleansing of the temple? I think it lies with the leadership of the Jewish priesthood for allowing this practice to go on. Now where does that sin come home to us today? I would submit to you today that those of us who are in any position of spiritual leadership have a responsibility to train those under us in how they take care of their temple. And that starts with a pastor. And that extends to the deacons and to the Sunday school teachers and the Awana leaders and the youth group leaders and anybody who influences other people in the church. Should we close our eyes and stop our ears when we hear of people desecrating their temple of God? (laughs) Frankly, one of the hardest things I have to do is to know how quick to go, how much to say, how much not to say. People call me and say, did you hear about so-and-so? I got to tell you, when you call me and tell me those kind of things, it puts a great burden on me, which I think is good. But I got to tell you, if I act on it, I'm going to have to say, you know, so-and-so told me there's a problem here. And I'm glad to do that. You know why? Because I care about people and the temple they live in. But if you have a position of leadership in a person's life, you need to go to them and say, brother, sister, child, aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever their relationship is, I'm concerned about you. There are some things going on here that should not be going on. Husbands need to talk to their wives. Wives need to talk to their husbands. Husbands and wives should be discipling each other. We should be influencing each other for the Lord. Parents should be discipling their children. We should not sit idly by like Eli the high priest. Do you know the story of Eli in the Old Testament? He was the high priest, and his two boys were right under him in the priesthood. And you know what his two boys were doing? 
when people came to offer their sacrifices at the temple, they took the women and had sex with them. And you know what Eli did? Oh my, I don't know what to do about my boys. You know what God did? Killed them all. We should take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. We should take it seriously in our temple, this part, this thing that the Holy Spirit lives in, and we should take it seriously in the lives of those around us. Certainly only God can make people change. I know that. But he's going to use us to to motivate them, to encourage them. One of the phrases that we hear at this time of year a lot is, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And usually it's, it's quoted in the, in the realm of doing something nice for the needy, especially needy children. And that's a wonderful thing. And I'm not against that at all. Some of you are involved in those kinds of things at work. That's great. I heard an honest appeal finally this week. I've never heard this before. A guy is trying to get people to give gifts to foster children. And he says, you know you want to get that warm feeling inside. And so give a gift to a foster child. It's not about helping out the foster child. It's about you feeling good. Hey, friends, if that's all that's driving you at Christmas time, I I got news for you. Your temple's been desecrated. What should be driving you is Jesus Christ. You should be helping the needy because Jesus helped you. Not caring whether it makes you feel good or not, just because he loved you. What is your life all about this Christmas season? May God help our lives to be all about godly actions that spring from a worshiping heart.